listening to the Retro Sermons Podcast. Find out more at NorthColumbusChristians.com slash Retro Sermons. Anxiously thinking about speaking on Isaiah 53 after Brother Haley. He said, what are you going to do if you look down while you're preaching and Brother Haley has got a frown on his face? I said, I'm going to try to find somebody else to look at if I can. (laughs) But I don't believe that there is a more supportive and encouraging man than Brother Haley is, even when our efforts are less than they ought to be. He would simply encourage us to keep on trying and do better. And that's what he would want. That's what the Lord would want of us. So in speaking this morning on this very signal chapter in the book of Romans, I take it in hand with considerable fear and trembling because Romans is not the easiest book in the New Testament. Amazingly enough, it speaks... However, about one of the most fundamental themes, and it's a rather natural transition from talking about Isaiah's great prophecy of the suffering servant Messiah to come to Romans and speak about this chapter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was for a while working with an English church with G. Campbell Morgan, and has quite a reputation as an expositor, made the observation that he was once asked when he was going to preach a series on the book of Romans. He said as soon as he could understand the sixth chapter. Well, with all due deference to Lord Jones and with as much kindness as I can muster, I have read his exposition and I don't believe he ever made it. (laughs) He is remarkable in many areas of the scripture. I found him very helpful. In the study of the Sermon on the Mount, he was a remarkable asset, but he is a Calvinist. And I cannot tell you what the presuppositions of Calvinism can do to the mind of a man when he's just trying to understand what the Bible says. And so as we begin, This study, recognizing that the Apostle Paul, as Peter testifies, wrote some things hard to be understood, and yet recognizing, too, that he said that it was through ignorance and unsteadfastness that they had misapplied and twisted them, I believe with all my heart that if we take any part of the scripture, and this one included, with a genuine heart and a willingness to study hard, we can understand God wants us to understand it. It will make a difference in our lives as we understand. Brother Haley speaks about being a teacher rather than a preacher. But there is nothing more stirring, motivating, and moving than when the human mind understands what God has said. That's what changes us. We have neglected the realization that helping people understand something is motivational. That knowing some things is power. Understanding God's will, his nature, his purpose, his promises, that's power in our lives. And I hope to say something more about that this morning. As we begin this chapter, my excuse for not starting with the sixth chapter is because it starts talking about what he'd already said. What shall we say then? What will our response be to this? 
Most obviously, the words of the preceding chapter are in view, but I would suggest to you they probably go all the way back to the latter part of the third chapter, where he begins his discussion of divine redemption, God's answer to the problem. But in order to set the picture correctly in place, we're going to have to begin at the beginning and say that Paul stated his proposition in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone that believes, and that in that gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's his proposition. The rest of the book is intended to demonstrate the truth of it. He first begins by tearing down what some would attempt to build. Because unless we get out of the minds of people that somehow or another by their own works of human merit, by their own skill and devices, by their own wisdom and counsel, they're going to be able to establish themselves as right with God, they're never going to be submissive to the righteousness that God provides. Now, I don't know if we have some still who are wrestling with the idea that maybe within themselves they're going to be able to accomplish right relationship with God. But if that's the case, they need to read the first three chapters of Rome. Paul begins by devastating the Gentile world. He gives a history of their immorality. It's a dark picture. And when he describes their situation as the chapter comes to a close, it's one word after another that presents a picture of absolute depravity. And he says about them in the midst of this discussion, they are without excuse. And while the Jews are listening with delight to this excoriating diatribe against the Gentiles, and while they're extremely vulnerable themselves, he turns to them in the second chapter and said, you are without excuse too. You especially without excuse. Because you have made, you have been specially privileged to know God's will. You have been his covenant people. And you have demonstrated your knowledge of God's will by teaching other people what it was. How had you ever thought that you who teach others the way of righteousness would escape the judgment of God when you don't practice what you preach? And of course, much is said in this chapter about that. And he concludes the matter in the third chapter in verse 9. And that is that I before laid to the charge of both Jews and Greeks that they're all under sin. Now, I want to stress this morning because it's important that the sin that Paul talks about in Romans is transgression. He does personify sin in this book. That is to say he presents sin as if it was a power. A power that could subjugate and tyrannize. But I think we need to realize that where there are no transgressions, there is no sin. And the tragedy of Calvinistic exegetes of this book is that they start with a presupposition that what God's trying to do is to destroy the sinful nature. And that the sixth chapter of Romans is about the destruction of the sinful nature. A nature that invaded man was put in man as a consequence of Adam's sin, and thereafter all his progeny were defective, so that they, even if they wanted to, even if they willed to do so, could never keep God's uh, commandments. Now, I can tell you at the very outset this morning, I do not believe Paul ever taught that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. The sin which is being, uh, which is being reproved here is a sin of choice. 
And by definition, sin is always a choice. If I don't have a choice, I'm not responsible, and therefore it cannot be sinful. We do not hold dogs accountable for being dogs. That is their nature. We don't hold hold cows accountable for being cows. It is their nature. But when it comes to man, man is free to choose his course. Now, we're going to have to accept responsibility for what we've done. And if we don't accept responsibility for the mess we've made in our lives, we will never assume responsibility for doing something about it and changing it. As long as I can say I can't help myself. And by the way, we do that a lot, those of us that are not Calvinists. I'm not looking in every closet to find one. I think sometimes brethren have been looking for some anywhere they can. They just see a Calvinist everywhere. But let me say this, that the Calvinistic philosophy is something that is pervasive and can get into you before you know it. One particular expression of it, I think, and it's not thought of in this way, but I think in the final analysis it comes out that way, say, well, the reason I did that is I'm just, I'm just human. What does that say? You mean you're made that way? God has constructed you so that when you see a choice between right and wrong, you've got to go the wrong way? If that is the case, how does God hold you accountable for having made the mess you've made? If you did only what you had to do. That is the Calvinic, Calvinistic philosophy. It, it, they never are consistent with it because they couldn't be consistent with it without destroying the whole of the divine writ, and they're just not quite ready to do that. But the point I'm getting at is Paul is dealing with transgression. Sin does not exist where there's no transgression. If somebody says, but there's an attitude. Yes, there are attitudes that are sinful. And there's no question at all, but sin begins in the heart. That's exactly where repentance must occur. That's exactly where the trouble is and where the change must take place. But uh, the problem is that the attitude is sinful. And the attitude of the sinner is, I'll do what I want to do when I good and well pleased to do it. And God take the hindmost. I know not most of us are that bold, but that is exactly the spirit of sin. And it's wickedness. As Paul says about the Gentiles here in Romans chapter 1, they knew God, but they refused to glorify him as God. You want to know what the greatest sin of all is? My brother Jim Popple called that to my attention one time. I've been preaching from this particular chapter, but he said, what's the greatest commandment? And the answer to that is the greatest sin is not to love God with all your heart. They knew God, but they wouldn't glorify him as God. They wouldn't exalt him as God. We've been treated to a lesson in the glory of God and the glory of Christ, but, but the sinner refuses to acknowledge that. What he recognizes and acknowledges is his own glory, his own will, his own wisdom, his own counsel. And that's the reason that pride is at the heart of the sin problem and that so many people today are willing to be good and moral in certain limited ways because they want to be that, but they are not going to be what God wants them to be because they refuse to give themselves away and submit to his counsel and direction. Sin is wickedness. It is iniquity. And for these kinds of attitudes that characterize the human race, by choice, not because we had to. As one student of this particular subject said, sin is the one thing in all the universe that absolutely ought not to be. No excuse for it. Can't be explained. It's an absolute act of human will. So every time you say, well, I did that because I'm only human, I want you to ask yourself the question, being human means being made in the image of God. What kind of possibility do you suppose that suggests about the good thing you could do? I don't question this morning that human beings have a propensity both for evil and for good. If that's what you're talking about, I'll buy that all the way. But when you tell me that a man has been constructed or has been flawed as a consequence of Adam's sin, so that when push comes to shove, there is no way in the world he can live his life like he ought to live it. Now you ask me, 
If that's the case, my brother, I want to ask you a question. Why is it that everybody's sin? And my answer to that is because they wanted to. Well, why everybody? Because they wanted to. Not because they had to. If they had to, there is no responsibility. And if there's no responsibility, there's no ability to turn the direction of our lives somewhere else. So therefore, the gospel begins in a hard place. It begins by charging us with responsibility for our wickedness. And if we'll accept that, it'll be a blessing to us. As C.S. Lewis said, the gospel doesn't begin to be very comforting. At its beginning, not very comforting. But at last, it's altogether comforting. But we have to begin here, accepting our responsibility. Sin is not some sort of aberrant nature that's been stuck inside of us. It is not some sinful wickedness that uh, is uh, uh, an alien force that's been put inside because Adam transgressed in the Garden of Eden. Uh, and if we, can, if we can grasp that and understand what Paul's uh, saying about sin in the book of Romans in that way, it'll help us, I think, immeasurably. Now, he goes on after that to talk about the great thing, about how God is moved to take care of this problem. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But that's not the end of the story. Because all have sinned, how do we know that? Because God said that's the way it's going to be. How did he know that? Because he foreknew it. He foreknew that all men would fall into sin and provided a solution for everybody. That's the reason Jesus tasted of death for how many men? For every man. It was a result of God's foreknowledge that uh, that he acted to provide a solution that was as universal as the problem was going to be. But I want to tell you something. The fact that God has foreknown that all of us are going to fall into this pitfall does not mean that we had to do it. Now, with regard to the matter of the solution to the problem, he says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to show his righteousness because the passing over the sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. God just didn't punish those sins. And for some of us, we think, well, that's all right. You know, he can just forget about it. Just like some old grandfather said a lot of hard things to the grandkids one day. You do that and I'll just thrash you properly. And of course, after a while, he, he kind of forgets all about that. And the grandkids are so sweet and everything. And he just forgets it. Listen, we're not dealing with that kind of situation. We're dealing with someone who is absolutely righteous. And whose righteousness is the foundation of the rule of the universe. And if he has fellowship with evil, he has simply destroyed his identity. He cannot do that. Sin must be punished. That was the whole idea of the propitiation. If he forgives us, as we said last night, sin has to be punished. And I asked the question, never answered it then. I'm glad for a second chance. Why in the world didn't Jesus just die in his bed at age 70? Or why didn't he get one of those sinless angels to come down? I'll tell you why. Because that would have been an inadequate propitiation for the sins of men. You want to know why the cross is such an ugly thing? Because that's just exactly how much it took to allow a righteous God to forgive you and to forgive me. And we ought to hate it with all that's in us. And he became, as a consequence of his wise ways, not only just because he punished transgression, he laid upon him the iniquity of us all, but he also became the justifier of those who believe. So the peace of God and the justice of God come together, the love of God and the righteousness of God come together in the cross in such a wonderful and unexpected way. We wouldn't have dreamed such a thing. And so he has justified us, propitiated uh, our sins. And uh, because of that, we look not to ourselves any longer for a sense of confidence, for a sense of assurance. But we look beyond ourselves. We can look up to him. 
I identify with the statement of the man that said, when I see myself, I tremble, but when I see Jesus, I rejoice. I tell you something, my brethren, the day is not going to come. You're going to have any confidence of heaven because you're looking at yourself. That's going to scare you to death. We need to be concerned about the kind of lives we live, and I think that'll be borne out in the sixth chapter, but we've got to recognize that the principal thrust of the gospel is good news to men who have sinned, who can never, ever again stand before the judge of the universe and say, I'm ready to be judged because I don't have a thing to be afraid of or ashamed of. We've lost that. And to such men as that and to such women as that, this gospel is addressed. And you must understand that the basic thrust of Romans is not to tell us how we can deal with the, with the gospel of grace, although that comes in, and how we can live our lives in Christ, although that comes in, and Paul always makes application at the last of the great principles he sets down at the beginning. But the first thing he's trying to get across is how we can be just with God. And his answer is only by faith, only by reaching out, only by trusting God for something we cannot do for ourselves. And so God acted in history on our behalf. Fourth chapter is just uh, not a digression. But he just uh, says there, uh, Abraham's a perfect example of how man is justified not by his own works but by faith. And he uses that very effectively because the Jew would have been the first one with Abraham, his father, to have said, well, we're just going to keep the covenant of God and we're going to be righteous before God within ourselves. And uh, Paul just says Abraham didn't find his confidence that way. He was justified by faith. And then he continues the theme that he began in chapter 3 and chapter 5. Being justified, therefore, by faith, we have peace with God. Now, justification in this case is a one-time, instantaneous sort of thing. I mean, it was done. Being justified. We have peace. This is something that God does for us. It's not, he's not talking here about what we're going to do about ourselves. He's talking about God's grace, justification by faith, what God has accomplished on our behalf, and then he goes on to say again, in verse 6, For while we were yet weak, in due season Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, peradventure for a good man someone even dare to die. But God committed his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. That's the kind of selfless love of God. It wasn't because you and I were so lovely. I know the Lord didn't look down on me and say, Earnhardt's wonderful. i got to have him. And there's D. Bowman. That's another great fellow. I'm going to have him too. He looked down at the whole lot of us and knew we were all sinners, and there couldn't have been anything attractive in us. I think about Christ coming into the world, the Son of God, from the glory that he had before. I'm talking about absolute sinless purity. I'm talking about holiness that is absolute, total, ultimate, and coming down and living with us. What it must have meant to him to observe our selfishness. What it must have meant to him, what, uh, what almost wretching of the Spirit must have caused him to see our lust and our carnality, our heedless unconcern for God's gracious love toward us. We were without thought of it. We were ungrateful and unholy. And we'll understand something of what it was for him to die for the ungodly. But the point Paul makes is, if he did that for us while we were his enemies, what would he do for us when we're his friends? What would he do for us when we were God's children? What will he do for us when we are reconciled? What will he do for us when we are at peace? The intention of Romans is to give great confidence and assurance to those who read this book. I, you can't read the 8th chapter and not get that point. I can tell you I believe the 8th chapter is a grand climax in the book of Romans. He's made his point on the great principle of justification by faith and the assurance that the, those who have confidence in God, uh, in his son Jesus Christ, are to have. And uh, he says nothing 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And with that in view, he comes in the fifth chapter toward the end to make a statement that's troubled all of us about Adam and Christ and how they relate. All he's saying there is that everything that was done in Adam, the grace of God altogether sufficient to take care of. That what Adam introduced in the world by the first sin and transgression, and then we all followed suit, did we not? We didn't have to. The passage says all sin. It doesn't say we all sinned in Adam. I know it might sound like that, but it's not necessary from the words of the text to believe that. Only if you've got a Calvinistic predisposition. You'll see, when Adam sinned, everybody sinned. That's not the kind of sin he's been talking about for all these chapters. He's talking about what I have done. It's the same thing the 51st Psalm. People want to talk about how David was born in sin and shaping in iniquity, and all he's been talking about for the whole of the psalm up to that point is what he's done. I have sinned against the Lord. I have been wicked. I just believe it's a hyperbole, just like one that's used later when he said, the wicked go astray as soon as they be born. Speaking lies. That's a hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. What David is saying, it looks, to, looks to me like I got into sin about as quick as I could. And that's the, that's the disposition we've had. But what Paul is talking about here is that there is grace sufficient for all my sin. Is that the song we sing? That the work of Christ is altogether adequate to take care of the sin problem. It has been great. And Paul painted it in black uh, tones in the uh, first, second, third chapters, but he's saying here that the grace of Christ is sufficient to take care of it. Now, he said, having said all that, having said we're going to have our confidence in the Lord and his mercy and grace and goodness and the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus Christ, not in ourselves, that we cannot look at our righteousness and have confidence, that we can't build hope on the basis of the fact that we have impeccably and flawlessly kept the will of God. That's not possible. We're going to have to look beyond ourselves. We're not going to be the hero here. God is going to be the hero. To God be the glory. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works. We are saved by grace through faith. All those great statements that Paul made in Ephesians. And he's saying, having said that, having nailed that down, I got a problem I, that I know somebody's going to create, or maybe somebody has already. I don't know whether or not he's anticipating a problem coming, or he's responding to an objection that's already been raised. We know what you're doing, Paul. You're going to encourage everybody to say, well, God will just forgive that. You just go do whatever you good and well please. The Lord will be merciful to you. In fact, the more you sin, the more you give him honor. You'll show the great glory of God's mercy and grace to the world. I suspect that there would have been some Judaizing souls who would have loved to attack Paul at that point, who hated the very gospel he was preaching, who themselves were self-righteous and self-centered and thought they were the heroes of all history and therefore would not have been pleased with this kind of preaching and they would have raised that kind of attack. But perhaps there were some licentious libertines who were wanting to draw conclusions from Paul's preaching that were absolute from Paul's preaching that were absolutely unwarranted. When he says here, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound and then respond, God forbid. What Paul means is, how in the world could we dream it? It seems to me that if we listen to what Paul says at all, no one, we just couldn't possibly get such a conclusion. That the grace of God is intended to open the door for us to just live an immoral and ungodly life heedlessly. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Of course, the language in the Greek does not contain the word God, but it's such a, an absolute denial of a thing. Don't even dream it. Inconceivable that the translators have felt it all right to include the name of God in it. God forbid, we who died to sin, how shall we any longer live therein? I want to begin at this particular point this morning to talk just a bit about the question of grace 
and law and grace and obedience. Because we're suffering from some terribly uh, misconceived teaching on that subject in our world. I know that Paul says in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. But I tell you, when you read words like that, would you please understand what he's saying? You're not under a system of law, but under a system of grace. If you put in there that that statement, it's not an addition to the scripture. It's just understanding in context what Paul is saying. We've got people who believe that law and grace cannot live together. I'm talking about any command of God. Let me tell you something. If that were the case, all those people that Hebrews 11 talked about as justified by faith, could not have been justified by faith because there was law. I want to stress for you this fact, and I think sometimes it's been missed. Do we have the impression that as soon as God spoke on Mount Sinai, there was law, and before that there wasn't any law? And as soon as God made covenant in Jesus Christ to bring men to him through his sacrifice on Calvary, then there was law. And outside this, no law. That's inconceivable. Because the very reign of God in the world means his law. First Chronicles 29, 11 talks about the fact that he has the glory and the kingdom and the dominion, that he rules over everything, that he's the king of the universe. And we need to understand that God's kingdom, God's reign has begun with history. He was reigning from the beginning. And consequently, there was law from the beginning. When did God expect us to love him with all our heart? When did that start? When did God expect us to love our neighbors ourselves? When did that start? When did that demand start? As soon as he created Adam. That is as old as the creation of man. God's demand upon us. God's ruling over us. His expectations are there. If you read the first chapter of Romans, and you see all those sins that are cataloged in that particular chapter, it is quite obvious, it is quite obvious indeed, that these people understood about covetousness and wickedness and maliciousness and envy and murder and strife and deceit and malignity, malignity and whispering and backbiting and being hateful to God and insolent and haughty and boastful, about being covenant breakers and disobedient to parents, about being without natural affection, about being unmerciful. They understood about all that because God said you violated the ordinance of God. And you knew more than that, that those that practiced such things were worthy of death. I don't know how that was done. We're not told that in the Old Testament. But we are told that God judged Cain because he murdered his brother. We are told also that the people of Noah's day were judged for their violent behavior. We are told also that the cities of the plain were destroyed because of fornication among some, Jude says fornication. Search after strange flesh wickedness. And again and again during this period of time before God ever spoke from Sinai's summit, there was a constant affirmation of divine rule. And when you come down to the New Testament period, the law of God doesn't begin with the covenant made in Christ. The law of God is included in the covenants that he makes with his people. His moral laws are included in those covenants. And the New Testament moral law is not a radical departure from the Old Testament moral law. It might be said to be the flowering of the bud. It's just an extension of what is the very nature of God. God's very righteous nature rules in the world. 
And if that's got to stop in order for there to be grace, there's never going to be any grace. And it hasn't stopped. That's the reason we said last night that God still hates sin with the same ferocious hatred that he's always hated it. It is out of his nature. He doesn't get mad like we get mad. That's not the kind of anger that God has. We have mad fits. And the next day we won't even get mad about the same thing because we don't have that headache we had yesterday. But God's anger against sin is as consistent as his love of righteousness. It rises out of him. It is intrinsic to his nature. It will not change. And his law and rule for man is always the same. Somebody said, I'm not a Christian. I never claim to be a Christian. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Are you a creature of God or are you a man? Because you're a man and the creature of the creator, you have an obligation to the creator to submit to his will and you haven't done it. And that's what causes sin. Somebody says, what was God's law to the Gentiles during the time of the covenant made with the Jews? You tell me. If it's any different than what God said to Israel in a moral sense, I don't know. I'm not privy to any information that I can think of, and I'm not the world's most exhaustive scholar at all, but I'm not privy to any information, you can help me if you know, that would tell me the difference between the moral demand that God made upon the nations during this period of time and the moral demand he made upon Israel. I had the same problem in the New Testament. There is no question in my mind that God rules over the universe and that every man and woman who's never admitted that Jesus Christ is Lord and every man and woman that's never submitted themselves to the will of Christ, that all those people are under the rule of God and they have violated his will. Tell me, they say, what is the difference between God's law to the people outside the covenant and God's law to the people inside the covenant? You tell me. I'm not privy to any information in the scripture that suggests to me any difference, if there is a difference. But let me just say this, if there is a difference, I don't know what it is. Judgment will come upon men because they violate the moral teachings of God. They are an expression of his nature and his will. You do not turn them off simply because God in his grace and love sends his son to die on the cross. In fact, that act, instead of rejecting law, pays great tribute to it. It is because God's law demands punishment for sin that Jesus had to die. If God was intent on despising law, if God was intent on telling his people, you don't have to pay any attention to the commands of the Lord anymore, you're under grace and not under law, never mind what the Bible says, then of course that God has abandoned the rule of the universe. Now, there's another thing that I, a point that I wanted to make as we begin this particular uh, study, a uh, part of the study. And that is that when we come under grace in Jesus Christ, the Lord doesn't say, well, now when the law was here, when the law of Moses was operating, they had to pay careful attention to every commandment. That's that old legal way. So you couldn't add anything and you couldn't take anything away. That's the way it was then. But now that we're under grace, we just have a lot of broad principles and suggestions, and you don't have to be that concerned about getting it here, you know, getting it right here and there. The study of the Sermon on the Mount has been very enlightening to me about that. When the Lord describes the kind of people that are going to be the material that he'll seek for the kingdom of heaven in chapter 5, Matthew 5, chapter 5 of Matthew and beginning of verse 19. 
Whosoever, now we're talking about the gospel of the kingdom, we're talking about attitude. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Is there no grace in this? Of course there is grace. We're talking about attitude. We're talking about a disposition of obedience and trust. We are justified by faith, then let us believe. And let us put our trust and confidence in Jesus says the one who puts his trust and confidence in God is the one who says, whatever you say, Lord, that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's what I want to do. And then the statements that are made in chapter 7, particularly verse 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. These are statements of a spirit of faith that expresses itself in obedience. They are statements of a spirit of love that expressed itself in obedience. So I want to begin just by laying that to rest. That law goes on. Laws go on. God's rule goes on. And if that were not the case, you would just be a forgiven man and that would be the end of it. You've got a new life, nothing to do with it. But there's more to God's redemptive intention than that. We who died to sin, he begins, how shall we any longer live therein? First argument he makes in Romans 6 is, it's not logical to say that we'll sin the more that grace may abound. That once God has set us free from sin, we ought to use that freedom to exercise all the sinful rebellion we can do. Why? Or are you ignorant that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You understand here that Paul's intention is not to tell us what baptism is, but his intention is to remind these disciples what all of them experienced. It wasn't some obscure kind of activity. It wasn't some obscure kind of baptism administered by the Holy Spirit. It was a, a concrete act that was commanded in the Great Commission to be administered by man and to be received by all. It is the one baptism of Ephesians 4, 5. And he said, you all received it. Now, do you remember what it meant? When you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death. There was to be a termination of some sort here. We were buried therefore with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. We have been joined together with his death and his resurrection when we were buried with him and raised with him. Now that death meant an end to something, and that resurrection meant the beginning of something. What is it the beginning of? A return to the thing you died to? Paul says that is inconceivable. He goes on with his argument. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away. As he proceeds through the chapter, he says, Jesus, when he died, was through with sin. Now you say, well, the Lord never sinned. Well, that's not the point. The point is he died in order to take care of the problem of sin. And once he had died, he had satisfied that need. He was through with that. And that's the statement of Hebrews 9, 28, that he came for sin at the first. He died once for all because of our sins. He bore the sins of the world, but he's going to appear the second time apart from sin. Brother Haley's point this morning, it, it, it states exactly what I wish I could have said. And that is that the glory he had before is the glory he has now. He does not deal with sin anymore. When he died upon the cross, raised from the dead, there's a new situation here. He's not wrestling with that problem anymore. He's done with it. And death has no dominion over him because the price has been paid, propitiation has been made, and death cannot rule anymore because the man who is fearful of death has now received release from his sins. 
And that's the statement of Hebrews 2, verse 14. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He's through with sin. Now, if we're going to be joined to him in that death, then we need to be through with it too. And we need to live a new kind of life. As one brother said about preaching on Romans 6, 4, said for every 20, 30 sermons he heard on buried with Christ, he couldn't hear one on risen to walk in his of life. Now, the reason that we are to walk in newness of life is because of what God has done for us. It's not what we are doing in the beginning of this chapter, but it's what God has done for us when we were buried with him. Now, the death here is not death to sin, or death in sin. It's death to sin. Somebody said, isn't that repentance? Well, I've preached that, but I've looked at this chapter and wrestled back and forth with it, and I'm about to decide that that's not right. Now, I don't deny that repentance is a death to sin in the sense that I renounce it, and my will is to refuse it, that I'm through with it. But at the same time, what's being discussed here seems to be something not that I do, but what God does for me. That he makes me dead to those sins. That when I am buried with Christ, there is a death that takes place. I'm joined to the death that Jesus died. And therefore, I'm cut away from those old transgressions. And I am delivered from them. And not only that, as a consequence of receiving this new life, and a new relationship with God, I'm enabled to live a different kind of life. Some people get hold of this chapter and they've decided that forgiven is fine, but now we need power to live that life. And uh, the old Calvinistic notions get in again and they say, well now, the Lord, you know, we got, we got that old nature when Adam sinned and, and that messed us up, but now when, when we become Christians, we get this new nature. God just sort of inserts something there. That is not true. What was it that touched our hearts and moved us to say, Jesus Christ is Lord? The Calvinists would say, well, the Lord got hold of you. His irresistible spirit got hold of you, and you just had to do it. I don't know why we ought to get credit for what we couldn't help doing. And I'll tell you, the Lord's going to have to take credit in that system for not having called some other people, because if they can't come, then he calls. Then the people that didn't come didn't get called, and therefore it's God's fault. I cannot conceive of that. It's not what the Bible teaches but in this particular instance, he's saying to us, I have redeemed you. My son has died for you. When you come in faith to him, your sins are forgiven. You have a new relationship with me. You are my child and you are my heir. And not only that, there are promises made to you. All things work together for good among many. First Corinthians also chapter 10 says that you will not be tempted above that which you're able. All kinds of promises that God makes. But what is the force that changed you and made you a Christian? It was God's word, the gospel, the power of salvation. Now what is the power that will change you? What is the power that will cause you to live a different kind of life? Oh, I don't know about that, but I just need something special inside of me. Do you really? I'll tell you one thing, if the gospel of the Son of God can turn you around from a child of the devil and make you a child of God, I don't have any doubt at all that it can help you live the life you ought to live. We just need to keep on walking the road we've begun. Too many of us looking for a new and easy way. There's nothing that's more appealing in this generation, or any generation for that matter, than a quick and easy matter, a quick and easy method of getting instant spirituality. Oh, I just wish I could be patient. I wish I could love the Lord all the time. And I just wish I could always feel he was near to me. And I wish I always was loving. And this, that, and the other thing. Well, that's good. I hope you continue to aspire to that. But if you're waiting for God to insert something into you with a hypodermic needle that's going to make you do all that and never want to do sin again, you're waiting in vain. 
the resolve of your heart that caused you to turn to Christ in the first place was as a result of the influence of the gospel of God's Son. You were convicted of your sin, and you were convinced of God's love, and you believed his promise, and you did what you did, and you begun the walk, and you begun the life, but now that's what God has done in order to deliver you from sin. And we're dealing with a sin-hating God and a sin-hating Christ. Why did Jesus die? To defeat sin, to destroy the works of the devil. You think God just wanted to forgive us so we could go on back to the same old stand on the, in sin's highway? Never in this world. The reason he has delivered us is so he can change us. There are two facets, at least, to God's redemptive purpose. Number one, to forgive his people, to justify his people, and then to take that justified people and turn them into the image of his own son. That is, that is Romans 8, 29. Bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2, 10, 11. And that's going to have to be accomplished because we recognize that once God has delivered us and brought us into a new relationship with him, that a new life must be lived. Don't presume upon God's grace. Don't ever say, well, God will forgive me. Don't be like old, that old German poet, Heine, who was asked about his rascally life. And uh, he said, what are you going to do when you face God? Well, he said, he will forgive me. That's his business. He will forgive you if you seek him in trusting faith. And that is the blessing of a system of grace that we can have forgiveness for our sins, but it does not justify the sin. It justifies the sinner and calls upon us to leave the sin behind. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Who's that old man? Been a lot suggested about that. The Adamic nature. Sinful nature. All he's talking about is me. As I used to be. In Adam, under the judgment of God's wrath, because I was a transgressor. That man was doomed. That man didn't have a prayer. And he was weak and couldn't do anything for himself. And it was in the nick of time that God sent his son to die for the ungodly. That's the old man that no more is. That old man has been crucified with him that the body of sin might be done. What's the body of sin? In all these passages, when Paul uses the term body, soma, he's talking about this body. What do you mean body of sin? He means the body that has been dominated and ruled by sin to this point and is no more dominated and ruled by sin. Somebody says, now, when I become a Christian, does this passage mean that sin won't have any influence on me? Over I won't even want to sin anymore. I won't think about sin anymore. The idea won't even come into my head. Well, you know better than that if you know anything. Fifth chapter of Galatians says, the lust, spirit lusts against flesh, flesh against the spirit, and talking about the experience of a Christian. What it says is you're in a new realm. Remember Colossians 1, 12, and 13? particularly 13, that he has delivered us from the power or the rule of darkness and translated us into the kingdom or the rule of his dear son. We're in a different kingdom now. We're in a different realm now. We're not in that old realm where there was no mercy, where we're struggling to do something on our own and be the hero of the story. And when we got through, we could strut around and snap our suspenders and say, see what I did? That world is gone for us. We have come into a new world. Now, that doesn't mean you can't leave it. What it means is that sin is eminently overcomable now. That sin is eminently overpowerable now. That you are not destined and doomed, no matter what you do, to come under judgment. If you read the seventh chapter of Romans and see that earnest man struggling to be right, 
You're not dealing with a sinful, wicked, ungodly fellow. It doesn't care what the Lord's rule is. In the seventh chapter, you're dealing with a man who's trying his best to be right on his own. And Paul said it did not work. The harder I struggled, the deeper I got into it. And it never will work. But put in a new world, in a new realm, under a new rule, the rule of God's anointed in, a, in the kingdom of his grace, then in every instance, in every situation, we have the power to overcome sin if we want to. But the resolve that moved us into the kingdom of God is the resolve that's going to keep us living as we ought to live in the kingdom. So, having said that, it's not logical that if we have been uh, crucified with a Christ who was a, a sin-hating uh, uh, Christ and a God who hated sin and crucified him in order to justify us from our sin, it's inconceivable that we should go back and live that kind of life again. Inconceivable. And then he spends the rest of the chapter talking about the practical side of this thing. And with that, we'll close our study. He said, first of all, verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey the lust thereof. And don't present your members unto sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves unto God as alive from the dead. You're in a new world now. You're the servants of God now. And therefore, you are not to present your bodies as the instrument of the sin that once ruled you and ruled you without hope. You didn't have any choice before. You were under judgment. It wouldn't make any difference how hard you tried. You're just going to be worse off than you were before under the judgment of God. But that's not true anymore. There's hope and confidence in can be had in Christ. For sin, verse 14 says, shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law but under grace. You are not under a system of law where there's no mercy. You are under a system of grace where there's propitiation and redemption and forgiveness. Verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you present yourselves as servants to obedience as servants you are? That's a practical matter. You're the servants of God, but if you present yourselves as servants to sin, you become sin's servant. I don't care what the situation is. You can call yourself a Christian if you want to, but if you're serving sin, you're the servant of sin, not the servant of God. And you've been put in position to serve God and to serve him effectively and to succeed in your effort to be what God wants you to be. That's what grace is about. We have this blessed opportunity with all that we need to accomplish God's purpose in our lives and we are expected to take hold of it and to exercise our will in it. But thanks be to God, he says in verse 17, that whereas you were servants of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching when you were delivered, and being made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. God turned you loose from that. He cut you loose from that in the redemptive act in Christ and in your faithful uh, determination to serve the Lord and your active obedience toward the gospel. You were made free from that. Free from that. Now serve the gospel that made you free. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. And then the final final point that he makes in verse 20 is, uh, for when you were servants of sin, you were free in regard of righteousness. What fruit had you then at that time the things whereof you are now ashamed? Exactly. What did you get out of sin? What would be the appeal? I want to say to you this morning that sin is just going to cost you everything. Uh, you can't win in a war against God. Sin is a, an act that is contrary to human nature. Somebody said, well, I, I find it very easy to do. Not so you wind up in any... And I'll tell you something, sin is the poison of the human personality. God knows what is best for us. All his commandments for our good always. And the only reason in the world he's given us his law, his righteous law, is because that's what, that's what will bless us. That will bring us to happiness and peace. And all our efforts to do things on our own and rebel against him is self-destructive. It will not work. We're running against the tide of history. We're running against the very nature of man. 
And we are certainly flying in the face of the nature of the universe that is governed by a God who is spiritual and who is righteous. And we need to ally ourselves with that. You are not going to get anything out of sin except your wages. And what is it? What are the wages that sin pays? And you will work hard for it too, the way the transgressors are. You're going to work laboriously hard for it. You're going to dig and struggle it out of all this. What are you going to get? Nothing but death. When you could have had a free gift from God by trusting him. Of course, when you live a new kind of life and a godly life in Christ, that doesn't justify us. We're not trying to prove to God now that we're good enough to go to heaven. Because we're not. None of us are good enough to go there. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. He lets us go. And he gives us what we don't deserve in Christ. But it's inconceivable to me that anybody would say that because God has been gracious to us and forgiven us, that we ought to play fast and loose with all his instructions and just live free and easy as a Christian, not worried for one minute that we'll ever do anything that could cost us heaven. That is against the tenor of Scripture and contrary to the spirit of the gospel. I want to tell you this, that the reason I'm concerned to do everything that God tells me to do is because he loved me so much and I'm determined I'm going to love him back. And I don't know any other way to tell him that I love him unless it's just this way. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. It's the expression of love. It's an expression of faith. Do you know some way to tell God that you believe in him and trust him? Except by keeping his commandments? By doing what he tells you to do? Tell me another way that I can do that. What a blessed privilege it is to live in Christ. He who has delivered us from sin and wickedness and ungodliness and hopelessness and pointlessness and brought us into a new relationship with his Father. Should we not therefore live as he lived? Should our lives not manifest the holy purity of the Savior we serve? And should we not reflect honor and glory upon the God who gave up so much, so inexpressibly much, for our sake, by living lives of godliness and holiness? I tell you, the purpose of the Lord is expressed in the lesson that Brother Haley so ably presented, that he wanted to present it to us to himself a glorious church, not having spot and wrinkle, any such thing. I, you know, I'm concerned about it, my brethren, because a lot of times we, we sit down and hear the kind of questions we ask ourselves, well, are we, are we having the Lord's Supper every Sunday? Well, that's a good question. You ought to do that, because that's what the Lord says. Well, do, are, are we keeping instrumental music out of, the, out of the service? Well, that's a good question. I believe that's just a small dot on a spectrum of things that don't have any authority in God's Word, and that's something to ask. But I want to tell you something. That's not what being a Christian is all about. God did not send his son to die on the cross so you and I could be sure to have an assembly every Sunday or three times a week and be sure to get together at the Lord's Supper and sing these songs. That's not why Jesus died. Jesus died so that he could present us, to, present us to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And somebody says to me, yes, that's exactly right. We're going to be a church that doesn't use instrumental music, and we're going to have the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, and, and all those things are going to be true. Well, well and good, and God be thanked that that's being done by churches, but I want to tell you something, that's not nearly enough. How will, we, how will we be presented to him spotless? How will we be glorious in his sight when our own lives are not godly, impure and unholy? Filled with thoughts of fornication, lust to the extreme, carnal, materialistic. How in the world will Christ present us to himself a glorious church not having spot and wrinkle or any such thing? If we died with him, let us live with it and for it. 
And let it be the joy of our life to say that's exactly what it's all about and it's my delight to do it. I thank God for the privilege for, of doing what he wants me to do and being what he wants me to be. May I conclude with Paul's statement in the third chapter of Philippians when he gives to us the expression of his one single purpose in life when he talks about what things have meant something to him in the past and then says in verse 7 that all those things that were gained to me have I counted lost for Christ. And then says that there's one thing that now possesses him Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained or am already made perfect, but I press on. If so be that I may lay hold on that for which I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things that are before, I press on toward the goal and the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, be thus minded. And if, any other, if in anything you are otherwise minded, this also shall God reveal to you. I tell you, if we're not doing something right, we're going to find out about it if it means more than anything for us to do right. If our heart is to do right, if it's our earnest purpose to do right and to please Him, it's going to be revealed to us if we're not getting it right some way. Have that confidence in. Put your confidence in the blood of Christ and live the kind of life that the sacrifice of our Lord made possible for you to live. We're living in the realm of Jesus Christ. Sin cannot have dominion over us. It cannot defeat us. There is nothing on this earth or outside of it that, keep it, that can keep us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. If you're not in that hope this morning, because you've never been buried with Christ and therefore never risen with him, we appeal to you to think about your soul. And if in this audience you have been buried with Christ and have been given a new life and then have thrown it away by selfishness and carelessness and indifference, please remember that you're in a realm as God's child where sin does not have to dominate you and you can rule over it by the power of Christ. Do that and uh, change and uh, remember uh, whence you have fallen and come and do the Lord's will while we're standing and singing.